Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing Tom's story. Are you growing tired of listening to medical professionals wax lyrical about a disease that has a lot more personal relevance to you? It's time to start hearing from those that have osteoarthritis, in their own words, about issues that affect them and what is important to them. It's a simple but powerful way of understanding your experiences and also hopefully motivating and stimulating change in others. I'm hoping this will be one of a number of similar episodes where we get people who have osteoarthritis to tell their story. The purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to hear from Tom about his journey. And we're joined by none other than Tom Battelle. So Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming along and being willing to, uh, to share with us your story. Thank you, Dave. It's always a pleasure. For those listeners out there, you're probably broadly aware that I do see patients and Tom has had the opportunity to see me at various intervals over a few different years and always had the pleasure of interacting with him on both a patient doctor professional level, but also in a number of other guises, which I'm hoping we're going to get into through the course of the show. Now, Tom, I do know a little bit about you, but both for myself and for the listeners who are out there, I'm just wondering... If you could just tell us a little bit of your, your backstory, you know, where you were born, where you're from, what you, what you grew up doing, what you enjoy. Okay, David. So I've just turned 60. I was born in Sydney, 
I grew up mostly in Mossman, actually. We were very lucky to live there. My dad lived there because of his work. I'm the oldest of quite a large family. I've got five brothers and sisters. Went to school, Mars Brothers, North Sydney, and then I went to a boarding school. I went to St. Joseph's College. I was quite a good sportsman as a young lad. So the good sporting kids went to Joey's and the smart kids went to Riverview. But yeah, so, uh, you know, I had a normal upbringing. Parents worked very hard. Yeah, it was, it was a good family life. So, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with growing up in Australia, we're a very sporting nation. We love, we love sport. And I think for most kids growing up, and Tom, I'm not sure whether you're one of them, a lot of kids grow up aspiring to be sports people in various guises or shapes. So what sports did you grow up enjoying? Well, I was an avid rugby player. I, I started playing rugby when I was six years old. And even despite my knee injury, I managed to play till I was 30. But in hindsight, I wish I'd never put rugby boots on because I was actually a very good athlete. I was gifted both as a sprinter and as a middle distance runner. And one of my big achievements is I actually won a a very prestigious award at at the school I went to. And in 1981, there was a centenary book called A Centenary of Striving. And so there's a hundred years of academics and professors and high court judges and wallabies and cricketers. Well, I'm in there, so that was quite an accomplishment. And I think I got it from my contribution to college athletics. And I think I got it not so much because I won a lot of events, but I did it with great adversity. And I think that's why I got the award. So, yeah. But other than that, I've always been a very active person. Uh, When I played rugby, my nickname was the cattle dog. And I think that says it all. I just was a whirlwind. I couldn't stop. So the blue heel at time? Yeah. Now, if you had to describe yourself in five words, and one of, well, I'm very happy for one of them to be a cattle dog, but you can use whatever <laughs> words you want to use. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I think I'm a caring person, hence the sort of work that I do. I think I've got a good balance between strength and sensitivity. Uh, I think anyone in that in the helping profession needs that balance. I'm hardworking. I, I grew up with good, very good work ethics from my parents and I use that in all aspects of my life. I'm a critical thinker. I remember one of the professors at uni said, if you want to be a good psychologist, you need two things, to know who you are and to be a critical thinker. So hopefully I've maintained that. I'm loyal. Loyal is another great quality. And, you know, obviously I've, I've had the privilege of having, having enjoyed your company on a number of different instances and seen some of those qualities shine to the fore. Now, you, you touched upon it a little bit in that description, but can you tell me a little bit more about what you do professionally? So professionally, David, I'm a psychologist. I work across the age span. So I see children, adolescents and adults. And I've got a few subspecialties in that I've done a lot of work with autism and ADHD, depression and anxiety. I also do a lot of forensic work because I've actually got qualifications in criminology. So I get a lot of referrals from lawyers and I do a lot of work for the courts and for corrective services. So that keeps me on my toes. And I've been a psychologist for about 33 years. Um, Tell me a little bit more about the forensic aspect. What 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 does that mean to the uninitiated? So it's really the overlap between the law profession and psychology. So I do a lot of work for criminal law firms within Sydney. And often, you know, they're sending their client to someone like me to see if there's any psychological grounds that might mitigate their circumstances. So it's quite interesting work. Now, have you used some of your professional training on yourself with regards, I guess, managing pain, managing other symptoms? I very much think I have. How consciously I do it, I'm not sure. But certainly 
I like to walk the walk and talk the talk. So at the moment, I've got quite a lot of young people who are quite obese. You know, I'm telling them they've got to get off their backsides and, and get moving. And that's something that I very much do myself. I've been practicing meditation for probably about 30 years. I, I was quite interested in the subject and read a lot of books and learned a lot about it, but I actually didn't practice it. And then I realized, well, that's not really going to help me. I've got to put it into practice. So I've been actively meditating for 30 years, and I often go away on the weekend to a meditation retreat, um, and that's been that's been very helpful. And then I use, you know, cognitive behavior therapies on myself. I guess having positive thoughts and trying to be upbeat. Yeah, and I think some of the some of those skills are, are likely to be wonderful assets to have for a person who's got a disease like osteoarthritis. But when you're not doing your day job, what do you enjoy doing outside of your day job? Well, lucky for me, I love cycling. So my running days are over, but I do cycle quite a lot. I, I was cycling from Cremorne to Leichhardt every day where I work. So cycling is certainly a great passion that I have. The other one is I belong to the New South Wales Shakespeare Society. I have this avid interest in Shakespeare, and he was the master of words. And I think words have a place to play in osteoarthritis. So you'll never hear me say something like bone on bone. I just won't use those words. So... Shakespeare was a master of the English language and the lexicon. I think he invented 3,000 words. So that's a great passion that I have. And I actually use a lot of Shakespeare's work in my own work because I think he would have been an amazing psychologist. He, he just knew the human condition. And again, I also do a lot of meditation. So I belong to a group that formally does meditation and I, I spend a lot of time you know, with that group. I also do a lot of reading. I, I'm a pretty avid reader, and I, but it, it usually tends to be technical stuff. I don't read a lot of nonfiction other than the Shakespeare's. Yeah, so it sounds like you've got an incredibly full plate, but a very rich and full life with that. And on that note, so just, I guess, digressing a little bit from the Shakespeare angle that you just introduced, you've pulled us up a little bit and, made, you know, very appropriately on some of the words that we've used. How often, you know, obviously I'm just being honest, how often do you see words that are used by medical professionals that are unhelpful, particularly obviously in the context of osteoarthritis, but even outside of that? Certainly in the context of osteoarthritis, I, I see it more than I, I wish I do, because I think that using negative terms and words doesn't help their patient. They're not helpful. And whether we like it or not, you know, there is a degree of placebo and suggestibility in, in all of these professions. So we need to use that to our advantage, not to our disadvantage. So I think, you know, our choice of words is very important. I guess that's just a help, helpful catch cry to all of us to just be reflective about the words that we use and the impact that they have. And, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself necessarily an old man, but I'm maturing in years. But there's still a hell of a lot that I can learn, that others can learn about the words that we use and the potential negative consequences they have on the people that we relate them to. Hmm. Yeah. It's highlighted for me also, David, because in my armament, I've been using hypnotherapy for about 35 years. And your choice of words when instructing hypnosis is very important because yeah. people judge you on those words. So you've really got to watch your words. So that's, that's some formal area where I've used that. Yeah, so really, really helpful advice. Now, let's talk about you and how you developed osteoarthritis, but I'm just wondering if you could just expand a little bit upon just how this came about when you first started noticing there was a problem. 
Well, I, I injured my knee. I was playing 5'8 and vice-captain in the under-16s. We were playing shore and I was tackled and my knee just gave way sideways. And I believe I ruptured my lateral and medial ligament. My ACL apparently didn't, didn't sustain any injury. But unfortunately for me, before I had surgery, I must have dislocated my knee on 30 occasions. So my cartilage, my meniscus was just torn to shreds. And I actually ran in our GPS athletics carnival before I had surgery. The problem I had was that although I was an elite, elite athlete, I was getting all sorts of troubles with my right leg, shin splints, groin soreness. It was all connected, I think, to the injury that I had. On leaving school, I went to Sydney University. So I played rugby for Sydney University, for Ringer and for Mossman. I really started to notice changes in the shape of my knee at about the age of 25. So about nine years after the injury, and probably eight years after I had had surgery. So I had medial and lateral repair and total meniscectomy. And in fact, the reason I retired from rugby at 29 was I had this fear of being caught at the bottom of a ruck. And because of all the changes in the morphology of my knee, fear was really there. So I had an arthroscopy age 28 and my orthopedic surgeon said, and I knew he meant it, he had that manner. He said, Tom, it's time to hang up the boots. And I knew in my heart that he was right. And I persisted for another year. But yeah, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I also noticed that the knee used to heat up. I had, um, I don't know what the technical term is, but I had cracking in, in the knee. Yeah, so it sort of went downhill pretty quickly. So you're a young man and you obviously had to give away the sport that you, you love playing. What consequences did that have for you at the time? It was a real major source of grief. Because I actually remember, I was probably 18, and I, I actually remember crying over the thing that I realised that any chance I had of, you know, having any sort of career as a sportsman was really gone. I knew that the damage would never be able to be repaired to the extent that I'd need it to be to be an elite athlete again. So there was a great deal of grief, but I got on with it. I was very blessed in that when I had my surgery, I used to take myself down to Balmoral Beach and I'd sit on the beach to recover because I had plaster on for 14 weeks. The wastage of my muscles was terrible, but I used to see these guys running up the beach and they were doing the garbage run on Balmoral Beach. And I knew one of the fellas and I said, what are you doing? And he told me, and when I got my plaster off, I actually got a job doing that. And I did it for the six years I was at university. And then I did it for another 14 years. You know, I was a practicing psychologist. And it was a great job because it actually kept my legs strong. There was times of pain, but I realized that the movements I was doing in doing this sort of a job was very helpful. And I've only found that recently when I did the osteoarthritis management program. Working with a multidisciplinary team, I realized that the exercises they were getting me to do was very much similar to what I did when I did this job, running on sand, going up and down stairs. Yes, that was really beneficial for me. Obviously, you know, you're now... 60 you sustained the injury during your teenage years through that time presumably you've come across things that have worked things that haven't worked what has been most helpful for you during that time in terms of managing your ongoing knee pain as i said earlier when i was getting my plaster off my orthopedic surgeon said to me tom you're gonna have to do these exercises for the rest of your life i didn't take him seriously at all when I was playing rugby, I used to strap my knee up. I used a lot of Luco tape. It used to cost me $50 a game to tape my knee up. I was always wearing a leg brace. But what I didn't realize was I was trying to sort of scaffold my leg from the outside, but I didn't really scaffold it from the inside. 
And that's where doing the exercises I've been exposed to probably in the last four years with the osteoarthritis management program, similar to the osteoarthritis chronic care program, that's been really, really beneficial. Before that, I always had 10, 20 ice packs in the fridge. I used to rely on ice. Occasionally, I had a heat ray, which I would use, but I found ice was a better treatment than heat. I guess I developed protective mechanisms that I'd, you know, I'd sort of favour the leg. I think my left leg's done a lot of extra work over the last 40 years. When I was very active, I was always around 75 kilos, so weight was never a problem. But unfortunately, when I stopped playing rugby and then the garbage run when I was 37, weight has become a real issue because I still like my food, but I'm not burning it off the way I used to. I'm lucky I don't smoke and I don't drink, but I do like my food. So it's a, it's a bit of a never-ending battle to keep the weight down. And I've also got some comorbidities now that means that that's even more important. Tell us a little bit about those, Tom. And I guess also while you're doing that, just expand a little bit on how you take a typical day and what do you do on a regular basis for managing your symptoms and what does that, what does that involve? So I've got some comorbidities around diabetes 2 and hypertension. And these are things that are both running in my family. So my GP, who I've had for 45 years, said to me when he diagnosed me about four and a half years ago of diabetes, he said, Tom, don't feel bad. He said, because, you know, most of your life you've been what he called hyperathletic. He said, but you would have got diabetes anyway because it's in, it's in your genetics. Now, my dad's 82. He got diabetes at the same age that I've got it. He also has hypertension. So I've got to keep those comorbidities in mind. As far as what I do on a daily basis, I think I'm a bit counterculture because you see ads on the TV about buying this mechanism and it'll make your life easier. Well, I actually go out of my way to make my life harder because I won't take the elevator, I'll take the stairs. I work in a terrace house in Leichhardt and my, God bless them, my colleagues, whenever they see me they limping a bit, they say, Tom, do you want to use the downstairs office? And I say no, because I need to be going up and down these stairs. So I'm very conscious of doing as much exercise as I can. I've got a pedometer on my, my mobile phone and I do try to reach at least 10,000 steps a day. On a good day, I'll do 15. So I actually walk most days. I get out of here at 4.35 in the morning and I'll walk for two hours. So I'm really conscious of getting that exercise I need to do. I'm a bit slack in that I don't do the specific exercises as routinely as I should, but I try to do them at least two, three times a week. I'm still involved on a monthly basis with the osteoarthritis management program. So that's where I've got a multidisciplinary team of physio, exercise physiologist, dietitian, rheumatologist. So having their expert input is really important. So doing it once a month is good, but I'm going to try and build it up to once a fortnight. I do try to maintain a very positive attitude to my condition. When I walk off and have a mantra and I say to myself, strength and flow, and I picture in my mind a vice-like strength and the flow of a viscous oil over a waterfall. And that's what I'm trying to imagine in my knee. Does it help? I don't know. It certainly makes me feel good. You've managed to maintain a very positive spirit every time I've seen you. Well, I certainly that's certainly a big part of it because I think when you've got any chronic illness, you've got to realise that your self-management is a very big part of it. So you, you've really got to be a glass half full person. And sometimes that's challenging, but it, it really is important if, if you can maintain that. I think some of, some of the important messages there that Tom's giving is really one about positivity and optimism. I think that's remarkable skills to have for someone who's got a chronic disease like osteoarthritis. But then, you know, I think Tom's story about having both diabetes and high blood pressure in the context of osteoarthritis 
is a very common one. And oftentimes, I think people miss the opportunity that they might have around helping to manage all of those with, with one simple remedy being you know, exercise and, and keeping the weight down. Now, Tom, we touched upon this a little bit ago, but obviously you've been and had osteoarthritis for a number of years now and heard some of the messages around osteoarthritis, both good and bad, from healthcare professionals. But can you give us some idea about some of the language that, that you've heard being used for osteoarthritis and whether it be impact on yourself or potentially impact on others around you, what impact do you think it might have had? Well, let, let's start on the positive impact. Two things that really helped me, and one was from yourself, David. I remember viewing the, the Howard Florey Memorial Lecture that you gave back in 2017, and you put up a slide on the, on the, on the screen, and it was basically a balance between what I think you called anabolic and catabolic processes. I never thought of my knee in such a term. I thought, I've damaged it, it's going to be damaged, it's not going to repair, it's just finished. But in a way, I had this terrible fall about two years ago, and, I, and my knee was in a really bad state. I had a huge baker's cyst, I mean, it, the swelling was terrible, but thank goodness, today it's really back to normal. So that dynamic processes that are there, I just didn't realise that. So that was really helpful. I think the other thing that was really helpful was it was probably a few years ago, it was certainly one child ago, Dr. DeVisa gave a webinar and she's talked about the myths that are involved with osteoarthritis. Well, sadly to say, I succumbed to a lot of those myths. So when she did her myth busting, that was really good for someone like me to hear that. Because I think with that evidence base behind me, it gives me confidence to do what I know I should do and, and probably what I want to do. So that's two instances where, you know, the language that I heard, that the message I heard was really positive and really helpful. On the other hand, you know, I actually get sometimes a little bit irritable when I hear people talk about bone on bone. I just don't want to hear that. It doesn't help. So again, you know, the, the use of language paints a picture. The picture's either going to be a good picture or a bad picture. Let's get rid of the bad pictures. And I think that's really important. And I think also, because I'm in Every patient has a different level of competency. You know, I'd like to think my competency is getting up a bit. I remember when I first met you, hand on heart, I honestly didn't know what a rheumatologist was. Well, I certainly know what one is now. So all that information I've got, and mostly it's all been positive and helpful, that's been really valuable. In my profession, we talk about psychoeducation, and I see it differently now, how important it is, because I refer to OA education. And it's really important, I think, that people have a clear understanding of, of what's going on at their level. Yeah, such, such an important lesson. And hopefully others can pick up from that, Tom. But I think the more evidence-based knowledge a person has about their disease and its management from reputable sources, the better informed, the better engaged they're likely to be in self-care and self-management, which ultimately are the skills which I think are so helpful helpful for people uh, longer term. Now, we've obviously had the privilege of interacting over a number of years on a, on a few different levels, one of which, you know, and I really wanted to relay this out there to the people in the community because I think it's such a helpful role for us in, in an academic university hospital setting to have informed and engaged consumers telling us about what we're doing and giving us their perspective on the work that we do. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role as an informed consumer and some of the activities you've done there? 
Yes, yeah, so, well, I, I've been very fortunate that I've been involved with a group called OMRAP. It stands for Outcome Measures in Rheumatology. And I'm what's called a patient research partner. So we have our own cohort. We often have, you know, informative webinars. Unfortunately, being Australian, we tend to get the raw end of the deal and that they're often at 12 o'clock at night. But I've got used to that now. So that's been really helpful to, to have an input into what researchers like yourself are doing. I've even had to get out some of my old uh, research and statistic books from my undergraduate studies and have a look at what Z scores were and T scores. So that's been quite helpful. I've been involved recently in looking at an instrument for, to measure flares. I've looked at domains around hip and knee osteoarthritis. So that's been really, really helpful. I attended the 2018 conference at Terrigal. I, I wasn't compass mentis in a lot of ways because I was in a lot of pain because I just hurt my knee two days before the conference was on. I was very much looking forward to this year, but unfortunately with COVID-19 pandemic, it's, it's had to be put back. But that's been a really challenging and interesting role. I've, I've actually quite enjoyed it. Uh, it's got me to push the envelope even professionally because, you know, I thought I've got an obligation to know what people are talking about. So it's been really good. Well, it's, it's incredibly valuable for us and hopefully also informative and knowledge gaining for you in that, in that role, Tom. And also, David, I'll just add as well that, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but when I attended the National Strategy down in Canberra, I, I think it was in 2018 or 17, it was really quite inspirational when I got up early that morning and I went to the gym and there were two people in the gym and I knew who they were and one was yourself and the other one was Norman Swan. So when your rheumatologist is walking the walk and talking the talk, that really is inspiring. I thank you for that, David. Oh, it's always my pleasure, Tom, always my pleasure. But yeah, I, I do try and maintain a good, sensible fitness plan. And I think it's, it's helpful for me as well as hopefully an example to others. Now, Tom, what do you think the biggest challenges are for a person who has osteoarthritis? I think the biggest challenge is to find a way of dealing with the pain because often the pain is chronic. I don't take medication. I really haven't ever taken medication in, in my whole journey. I, I'm just a, a person that doesn't like taking medication. So I've had to rely on other mechanisms, certainly to try and do what you enjoy. So I do enjoy cycling. So I do cycling. I'm not the greatest swimmer. I find swimming quite boring. You know, I'm now doing the exercises I know I should do. I'm very conscious of trying to keep my weight down and I'm trying to lose weight. I think, you know, when it comes to pain, I often as a psychologist think that we have a relationship with pain. Some of us, our relationship puts us in the victim category and that always isn't helpful. I don't see pain as my enemy. I see pain as my friend. And I think that that's a challenge for some people. And it it's probably goes in the wider areas. You know, we talk about you know psychosocial factors. Well, to me, they're very important. But there are obviously challenges that we, that we need to face. And again, some really important messages that I hope others others can gain a lot from there. But I think particularly around trying to work out something that is working for you that will be suitable long term that you can engage in meaningfully long term. And so obviously, you know, Tom loves walking, cycling, doesn't like swimming. So. You know, I think trying to find an exercise program and routine that works for you, that is conducive to your long-term health and well-being, so, so important. Now, Tom, I'm obviously usually the one who's asking the questions, but are there any questions that you have that I might be able to give an answer for? Well, there is, and one of them is quite a technical question, but I won't ask that first. I'll ask the more general question, and that is, 
I've just turned 60 and I actually can feel, you know, my muscle mass decreasing and, and the strength of my muscle. So I'm starting to do more weight training, which is something I've never really done before. I do get a bit concerned because I wonder as I age, if that's going to negatively impact on what's happening with my knee, even despite my best efforts. So that's the first question. For that, you know, definitely there's a whole process called sarcopenia. And so that's a process of age-related muscle decline where people do lose strength, do lose bulk over a period of time. And that's one of the main motivations in encouraging people to continue to get in the gym, to continue to do strength training, to facilitate. I guess trying to at least prevent, if not reverse, some of that loss. More often than not, what we find is that the vast majority of people who are adherent to a program like that are able to maintain their bulk, their strength, and their function over time. You know, undoubtedly, it's a battle. It's a war of attrition where you can either let, you know, age take its course or you can fight against that. But I think for the vast majority of people who stay adherent to the plan and stick to the ongoing strength training program, they actually do very well. Okay, thank you, David. And the next question is actually two. What's the difference between meniscus and cartilage? And what is radiographic disease? So there are two types of cartilage in a person's knee, if I want to just take the knee as an example. One is what's called hyaline cartilage, which is the cartilage that lines the surface of the femur and the tibia. It's, a, it's lining the ends of the bone, as distinct from fibrocartilage, which is the meniscus. So it tends to contain a different makeup of collagen fibers. So collagen is one of the major substrates, major tissue constructs within cartilage itself. It's got a slightly different type of collagen in the fiber cartilage than it does in hyaline cartilage. So it's just a slightly different form of cartilage. And the second part of the question was radiographic disease. Radiographic disease just means x-ray change consistent with osteoarthritis, as distinct from self-reported osteoarthritis, which might be just based on symptoms and examination. Uh, so radiographic disease literally just means we can see it on an x-ray. Thank you, David. Yeah. Now, obviously, I know you a little bit, but I probably don't know what necessarily makes you tick. But can you just tell me a little bit about why you do what you do, whether that be you know, as a psychologist, as a, as a patient with osteoarthritis, as a, in general, what motivates you most? I think it goes back to my old school motto, and that is strive for better things in myself and in others. So in memoria contendum is the Latin. So yeah, I, I strive for better things. And certainly as a psychologist, I wish that for my clients and I try to help them to, to get there. Yeah, that's a great motivational statement that hopefully others can again learn from. But if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? And I'm very happy for that to be your school motto, but we've probably heard enough about Joey's for one, one setting. <laughs> no, on the sun visor of my car, I've got the Nike saying, just do it. So that's one of them. And the other one would be a quote from Hamlet, where Hamlet says, things are neither good nor bad, but my thinking makes them so. So that would be the prayer of cognitive behavior therapy, but that's really important. So what, despite what happens to us in this world, it's how we deal with it. It's how we think about it and how we process it. And I think that's really important when it comes to something like osteoarthritis. It's a chronic condition. There's no cure, but how we think about it is really going to be important. And I guess the last one would be from the Deserata, which says, with all its sham drudgery and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful and strive to be happy. Uh, wonderful advice. And again, I, I think 
thinking about osteoarthritis, the, the just do it and the promotion of getting out there, being active is, is so important. But then again, being optimistic and being positive, come what may. I, I mean, I think there are so, such important qualities that I think, again, we can all learn a hell of a lot from you. So thanks for sharing that with us, Tom. Now, any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to leave us imparting for people out there who have osteoarthritis? I think it's basically use it or lose it. You've got to keep active. Uh, and although that might be a challenge sometimes, it's really, really important that you do it and that it may bring some initial pain. But sometimes if you persevere, you'll find that you know the benefits are, are really tangible. Spoken from someone who has it, and those words are incredibly powerful, Tom. So thank you again very much for sharing that with us. Thank you so much for your time, for your ongoing input to the work that we do and your ongoing enthusiasm. It's really, really appreciated. My pleasure, David. And I hope you keep working for many, many years. <laughs> I'll have to rest at some point in time, but we'll keep going, keep going while we can. That's for sure. You're definitely inspiring us to keep going. So that's all for this episode of Joint Action. If you'd like to hear more and want to support us, visit the website or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, stay active, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointaction.org. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.